good fiction should not be preachy, say many critics. They may even preach this message. But even if excellent Christian-made stories should not preach, does this mean that stories will have no teaching at all? Is preaching the only way we learn and grow, or don't we also learn and grow through discipleship? This task includes but is not limited to preaching or sermons. With help from Lorehaven writer and That Pale host author L.G. McCary, we will explore how great Christian-made stories do have a purpose not to preach beyond the fourth wall at readers, but to help disciple our imaginations in Christ. Welcome again to The Bridge of Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we apply the meanings of these stories to the real world our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven, also the co-author of nonfiction about fiction book, The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, but you can call me Zach. And for a long time, I used to imagine myself on a stage preaching to thousands of people But there was one problem, I have stage fright. Even though I'm an extrovert, I don't like being in the spotlight, which is why I'm behind a microphone on this podcast. And this is episode 67, How Do Fantastic Stories Avoid Preachiness While Still Discipling Readers in Christ? And we have a very special guest today, Laura McCary. Welcome, Laura. Hi. Nice to be here. It's a lot of fun. And I can't wait to actually talk to you guys with the microphone running. And we've had a lot of conversations of late because Lara, also known as L.G. McCary, which is her stage name or rather her novelist name for her forthcoming novel, That Pale Host. Uh, she's a new voice to Fantastical Truth, and yet we've uh, we're working with her at Lorehaven. Uh, she's actually been helping a great deal with the Instagram feed. Uh, so if you're seeing more of us on Instagram at Lorehaven Mag, that is no doubt due to Lara's efforts. Lara, explain a little bit more about yourself. How did you get here? Just out of curiosity, real quick. What do you like fantasy? Like what, what brought you to the whole Lorehaven project? Lots of stuff. I met you, Stephen, at um, a homeschool convention just um, a few years ago. And I, I had never heard of Lorehaven really ex- until I had participated in a contest on the website. And there was a short story contest with speculative faith. And so then I just got started talking to you and got really interested in just Lorehaven in general and all the cool stuff that you guys are doing. And then then I was like, oh, wait, I can do more than this. <laughs> I can actually be involved and maybe write too. So my dad actually read uh, The Hobbit to me when I was in third grade and he has dyslexia. So I would have to follow along and read with him to make sure he wasn't reading it wrong. So I ended up reading the entire book of The Hobbit when I was only in third grade. And that got me started on fantastical fiction. And oh, wow. I read a ton of Michael Crichton in high school and college and just loved all things fantasy and sci-fi from then on. And then, and also, of course, Frank Peretti was my really big, like, gateway drug into Supernatural. And that's what I write is Supernatural. So I love his stuff. And I cannot wait to meet him in a few weeks at Realmakers. <laughs> all right, well, we're all having a grand Lorehaven reunion at the Realmakers conference, uh, which is specifically for Christian writers of fantasy, sci-fi, and beyond. And Laura, I saw earlier, you have a stack of books to use for a positive and negative examples of this topic, oh, uh, yes. which is uh, not just uh, preachiness equal bad, but uh, kind of pushing back on some of the Christian critiques of what we think are preachy fiction. And what we've talked about before when we have gathered together uh, to discuss Lorehaven and share the stories that we enjoy over cookouts and such, uh, because all of us are fairly local here in Texas, we've discussed uh, some, of the, uh, some of the unnecessary critiques 
Christian fiction is too preachy, uh, some say, and therefore the conclusion follows, well, we ought to just make stories about stuff and compromise the meaning of these stories. I'm just curious from both of y'all's vantage, like how, how have we been talking about these issues in person? Well, it's, a lot of it is that uh, the idea of evangelism, you know, and that how are we, it, you can't have a book be Christian enough unless it like presents the gospel overtly. That's a common critique. It has to show a conversion. It has to show, you know, this specific set of steps so that you, somebody knows how to become a Christian in a Christian book. That's just silly. That's, that's a silly thing. Yeah. It's, that, that stuff can be included and it's awesome when it is, but it can really trip people up too. Cause it, if you're reading that and it doesn't fit the story and doesn't fit the tone, it takes you out of the story. Well, Zach and Laura, I want to ask you in a moment what we mean by preachy stories and what our problem with this kind of preachiness is. But first, last week, Lorehaven had several articles, some amazing content about stories that are not preachy, but are amazing stories that are made by Christians and by non-Christians. Emily Hayes on Monday, for example, had an article called Thor Hammers Home, the Story of Two Prodigal Norse Gods. Uh, that one was pretty popular about the first Thor movie, uh, which uh, hopefully is getting popular again now that Loki has his own TV show. Uh, next, we had our last Fantastical Truth episode, an interview with author Sharon Hink of Windward Shore and the Dancing Realms trilogy. It was called What If You Escaped Your Floating Island But Returned to Face Rebellion? Uh, next, we had a Shannon Stewart's article called Perfect Characters Don't Have to Be Boring. By seeming coincidence, a lot of that article focused on C.S. Lewis's fantastic island, uh, island floating uh, planet of Paralandra, uh, which is an inspiration behind Sharon Hink's story. So interesting timing there. Finally, we had uh, actually it was my live stream for the Realm Makers stream on a Crowdcast. Uh, and we revisited the topic of actually a previous Fantastical Truth episode. Why do homeschool families love Christian made fantastical fiction? Uh, Darby Kern, uh, who's a writer and audio drama director and producer, had joined me for that discussion. Finally, on Friday, we had a Lorehaven review of Laurie Lee's fairy tale retelling Cinderella spell. So you want to check that out and make sure to subscribe free at lorehaven.com, especially because hopefully sometime this fall, uh, we'll be launching a new feature at Lorehaven. Maybe this fall, possibly, you never know. Uh, but you'll be the first to know if you subscribe for free to Lorehaven Updates at lorehaven.com. Now, let us launch into the topic proper. Uh, what do we mean by preachy stories, y'all? And, and what's the problem with this? There's a legitimate criticism here uh, when Christians or mm, people who are generally a little bit younger, maybe raised in evangelical subcultures, and they look over at the bookshelf filled with forgotten favorites, and they roll their eyes a little bit and they say, yeah, I thought that novel was pretty cool, but turns out all along, gag, it's preachy. How, how do we understand this label? Zach, you want to go first there? Yeah, well, so I almost feel like I need to sneak a few items from the concession stand before we jump into this. because yeah, I'm feeling a little hungry. Let, let's yeah. peel off the shrink wrap and, and see what we got to throw into the microwave. <laughs> I want popcorn. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to say, first of all, I believe in preaching. Like, preaching the gospel is my life's work. And it it's what I do vocationally, but it's, it's what I would do anyway. You know, there's this phrase I heard a long time ago that probably uh, to you, our listener, you've probably heard this, which is, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words and i used to like that eh. until i started thinking wait a minute that doesn't work with anything else like feed the poor at all times if necessary use food your pre preachers are not mime yeah. performers <laughs> right yeah so i believe in preaching the gospel you know first corinthians 
15 and Romans 10, 9 through 10. Like I, I could go into every verse, the Romans road, the four spiritual laws, what the bridge analogy, what have you. I love the gospel. I want to preach the gospel. There's one thing though, which is that I believe in personal evangelism, like emphasis on the person. The person should preach. The book should not. Amen. And, and, and we'll get into that in a minute. But, uh, you know, I used to really like preachy stories, though, when I was really young in my faith. Uh, I'll get into that in a minute and some examples of those. But I used to just love it because it's it's like it's so simple. Let's just have the gospel in this book and I'll hand the book to someone and then that'll take care of the rest. I sort of grew out of that view and I have a different view now. But um, I think when you want to hear a message that you already agree with, a preachy book doesn't seem like a problem. Well, and if you also are a Christian reader, a young Christian reader who knows that you're supposed to be zealous, you're supposed to be intent on the preaching of the gospel, the fulfillment of the great commission to all nations, that is a biblical summons. It was Jesus's last command before he ascended before earth. We know that's what we're supposed to do. So we assume in the back of our heads, well, that means that everything Christians make, every song, every work of art, uh, every novel, uh, every fantastical story, if it's to be a good one that will please Jesus, then this story must include somewhere a specific call to repent and believe in the gospel. You need to get saved. Therefore, a good book will get you saved. And Laura, you were talking earlier about some of uh, some of your uh, responses to that belief as well. Yeah, it drives me nuts because this is what I believe. I have four children. I homeschool and I am very, very, very picky about what books I allow in our home and what I allowed them to read. And it's partially because I do want, to some degree, what some people would want, would call preachiness, which is that I want the books that they read to have a clear black and white moral sense because they're children and they need to have their moral sense shaped. I want evil to be uh, vanquished and good to triumph at the end of the books they read. That's very important. Now, as an adult, it's a little different. You can enjoy Adventures and Odyssey now as an adult and hear it that some parts of it is really, well, like really moralistic and preachy, but it's still a good story. It's still fun to read and listen to. There's talented storytelling going on there, even though there's a very strong moral element. We mislabel things that are moral as preachy, and that is not true. That's a false equivalence. Right. Right. The, the objection of that's too preachy can quickly become uh, an objection to other things. That, and, and that's a, mm-hmm. it's a bad objection. It's actually a failure to discern the place of a story. And we'll get to that in a moment. So, Zach, again, to, to uh, grab another snack from the concession stand, what we're not doing here is dishonoring the role of the preacher or the mission of mm-hmm. the preaching. We want to hold these in high regard. We're not walking into a local church on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m., interrupting the sermon and saying, that's too preachy. Uh, <laughs> the legitimate criticism about preachiness, wrongful preachiness, is when we open a book, when we believe that is not the job of the book to preach. The job of the book is to be a book. Uh, I'm not going to walk into the grocery store and talk to the Christian manager and say, uh, you're not preaching enough. That's silly. The grocery store's job is to provide you with victuals, to provide you with the food you need. That is the task of a book. We, we think that a novel, especially a novel made by a Christian, including but not limited to novels in the fantastical genre, they have a different task. And that task is to delight. That task is to simulate reality uh, by asking questions and exploring truths. And like you mentioned earlier, Laura, that moral universe that we assume but also needs to be challenged and fleshed out uh, with a story, with a character who's going on a journey, uh, maybe with or without magical gifts. And some of this we've 
done uh, the groundwork for in previous episodes of Fantastical Truth. So we'll, we'll just have to kind of rely on our previous episodes about the purpose of fiction. And we've also done some, uh, at least one episode uh, about how Christians can respond to preachy secular fiction. So this is more of the, the Christian equivalent. Which is something I really care about, like with the, with the secular fiction being preachy, it's actually worse, in my opinion, than Christian fiction. It, oh, yeah. I think you see it all over the place. And so I, I think it's kind of silly when we, uh, Christians shouldn't get up in arms about a preachy fiction, quote unquote preachy fiction, because it, the secular world does it all the time. And so this is nothing new. It's nothing abnormal either. Oh, yeah. Well, we've gone over the the annoyance of acting as though Christians or evangelical Christians are the only ones who make preachy stories. Because with those, the Christian can cringe throughout the ending of that cringe ending at the cringe Christian movie uh, where they give the altar call and spell out the movie's message for you uh, so you don't go home thinking that it's run by heretics who just want to leave every question unanswered. We can cringe through those, but at least we can kind of see where they're coming from and be gentle as possible with our family members. The secular preachy story, though, uh, isn't even preaching anything resembling the truth. You know, anything that gets in there that is true seems to be despite their desire to give some secular altar call at the end. So, Laura, you had a stack mm -hmm. earlier there. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you wouldn't mind going over like one or two examples there. Actually, actually, I think all three of us have an, an example that we might offer uh, of a secular preachy story or, or a Christian preachy story. That is a Christian made story that, that comes across preachy despite its author's good intention. Yeah, um, for I have two. One, the, I'll start with the secular one first because I think it's an interesting one. Specials by Scott Westerfeld. It's the third book in a series. He's actually, uh, I have not read the rest of the new ones that have come out recently, but this is this is an older young adult series, and it's uglies, pretties, and specials, and it's you know dystopian, post-apocalyptic type stuff. And there's a big theme throughout the the series of evolution and manipulating um, our need for beauty, like our, that we are evolutionarily programmed to want certain things in other people to, to be attracted to certain things. And there's a line at the very end of specials that I remember when I read it, I just cringed because I thought, oh, come on now. So um, at the very end of the, of the last book, she, the main character, her name is Tally. She's um, looking at this other boy who is not special. He is not manip like manipulated with plastic surgery and a bunch of other crazy things. And she says, what do you think? And he's, he peers into her eyes for a long moment, then sighed and shook his head. You just look like Tally to me. She looked down, her vision blurring. What's the matter? Nothing, David. She shook her head. You just, look you just took on five million years of evolution again. And so what she was saying is that you are looking past five million years of evolution to still find me beautiful because she's been manipulated to not particularly be beautiful anymore. And I'm just going, really? At something, if, especially in the tone of the chapter. But there's all that throughout, this, throughout the series. It's very preachy. There's a lot of evolution comments. There's a lot of stuff that it's just, he hammered it so hard. And I kept thinking, come on, dude, we get the point. We don't need to see it again. So out of curiosity, it's not that the, uh, the, the story world is assuming the reality of evolution and not making a big deal out of it. it, it mm -mm. I'm, I'm hearing it, it may be more, because I haven't read this, but I'm hearing it may be more an example of a character saying like, as you know, X, after 5 million years of evolution, we blah, 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 yes. blah, 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 blah. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's because it comes up previously. Dialogue. I couldn't go find the quotes, but I know it, it came up at least once in each of the first two books where they would comment on how this is how you're, this is how humans evolved. This is how we've come to accept these things and why it, why we have to have pretties and specials and all this stuff. And it, it's the basic premise of the book, but it's preachy and just drove me nuts. Laura, you have previously used the phrase breaking the fourth wall. Uh, I like that so <laughs> much. We integrated it into the pitch for this episode. Uh, it sounds mm -hmm. to it sounds to me like this book has breaking breaking the fourth wall. And we were mentioning earlier too about the infamous Dan Brown mystery -ish sort of story, suspense -ish sort of thriller sort of story, the Da Vinci Code, which was infamous in the mid two thousands for basically being full of heresy. And in my view, because I did read that book, uh, the heresy was the most interesting part of the story. That character nice. names has the dumb. Uh, the hero has the dumb. The only fascinating part is when Sir Lei Tibing is given this big lecture about how everything you thought you knew about Christianity was wrong. And Jesus was married and, you know, women are awesome and men are scum and all of this nonsense. And it is shattering the fourth wall, just taking a sledgehammer and walloping that thing. Gentle reader, you do need to realize that if you had anything to do with Catholicism, it was all a racket. Uh, and it was not only anti-Catholic, I think it was just anti-good story. Some Christians meaning well uh, would come into the Christian bookstore in which I worked and want the resources to understand the Gnostic Gospels and the false teaching in this book that was so popular and about to become a movie. But they would say, well, at least it was a good story. And I go, you're one for two. It's full of false teaching and it's a lousy story. The preachiness mm -hmm. steps all over it and ruins the chance of it being at least a passable thriller. And can I just say that even the amazing Ian McKellen could not salvage that character in the book, like from the book. It, it was a terrible character on film as well as in the book because he couldn't, even he could not make it awesome. I have to ask you, Stephen, did you intentionally mispronounce it as the Da Vinci Code? I have been doing that since I was a <laughs> snarky person in the mid 2000s. And yes, that is intentional. I would like to think That's that wonderful. Master Leonardo. Uh, would smile uh, akin to the Mona Lisa uh, upon this ruination of his legacy. Uh, even yeah. if he was not a Christian, I haven't seen his church membership card. Uh, I'm sure he, he would not like being associated with this uh, systemic, false, heretical nonsense. Well, let me uh, tell you one of my favorite examples of, of both a non-preachy and then a preachy story, all in the same example. It's The Abyss. Oh, that's true. I, I must have watched that movie dozens of times as a teenager. I love that movie. Um, it was so fantastical. It's underwater, which is like frightening to me because I, I am afraid of drowning. It's very claustrophobic, but it's very redemptive. Two of the main characters, like their marriage is restored by the end, which is wonderful. It's got aliens. It's got you know Navy SEALs and all this awesome stuff. Epic special effects. Yes. Yeah. Oh, just incredible. I mean, it's what you'd expect from a James Cameron film. And then till a few years later, I discovered this special edition of it where at the scene at the end where Ed Harris as character is talking to the aliens in this little chamber, uh, they added on this footage where the aliens show him all of these, you know, video clips of like Gorbachev and Reagan and the cold war and aren't humans so bad. And, oh, you have nukes. Like, how can you be trusted with a planet? And, like, and yeah. And so Ed Harris is has characters like, oh, we are so bad. We are terrible. 
please save us aliens. And it, and like, gosh, it just totally ruined the movie because he came to the same conclusions in the original edition without all of that extra guilt trip on top. It was like a deus machina for his character development. It sounds like so a it, very special episode, special edition. Yes. there. <laughs> that's oh, funny wow. because that's the only version I've seen. Oh, so really? I didn't know that there was a better version. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so now I, I want to go back, back and watch the original. Yeah, I don't know if I just watched the made-for-TV version where they had to trim it to time or something, but and I realized what it is, what why that moment was so preachy. It's be it's because of the. I don't know if you call it like the royal us or it's like the, the 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 too inclusive us. It's like yes, we humans. When really what they're what it's saying is you humans, you bad people. Yeah, yeah by my indulgence by making the movie about it and then I made right. the movie about the sexy naked blue people flying around on dragons someplace <laughs> and Which is also I preachy. get to preach again all over about the same nonsense. Yes. Yes, hundreds mm. of millions of dollars of carbon stomped upon yeah. and petroleum wasted to uh, lecture us. I used to call that Dances with Smurfs. Compare that to a moment from the Bruce Willis movie, The Fifth Element, that came out a little later in the 90s. Excellent movie. Where Lilu Dallas is seeing all of these clips of like human history, all these video clips, and then it gets to war. and So it's almost like more of like a topic. Like she's learning all these little topical things about humans and then and then she learns about humans going to war and it's just like this clip show of all these clips of every war and then she's horrified by it and then you know she she's like wow like humanity is really messed up and you don't disagree with her but it's very it's like so quick and and it's really more about her reaction to it that sells it it's not you know uh someone like self-flagellating over oh we're so bad right well, Christian fiction has its own way of doing that, to be sure. Uh, this is a human problem, as we've mentioned. It's not limited to secular-made fiction or Christian-made fiction. Uh, this is a human issue. A human's gonna human. And preachy fiction feels annoying for a reason. We just sense that something is off. Something is off. Unless we're kids and we think that that's what we're supposed to like, because we think that those are the rules and we haven't quite understood that stories have a higher purpose. It could be argued, of course, that, well, we really need this preaching. It's, it's necessary. Uh, and, and again, we're not going into church and, and condemning the preacher for doing his thing. Uh, the movie, the story ought not be doing this. I think, though, the best rebukes to bad preaching are, well, first, bringing up the examples and ranting at them uh, like we're doing now just to get it out of our system. Uh, but I think ultimately the best rebukes to bad preachiness are, are in facts and not just our feelings about them. Uh, we know, I think, the fact that biblically human-made stories are not meant to preach. Sermons are meant to preach. There's a difference between them. And I got one more. I just have to get off my chest there. It was when I was reading, I think it was in the late 90s. No, early 2000s, but the series was from the late 90s. And I don't mind calling it out here because it's barely remembered now. It was a series, I think it was called the Millennium Trilogy or something. Uh, literally a Christian psychiatrist wrote the first book in the, I think it was the 90s. It may have been even before the Left Behind series. It was called The Third Millennium, and it was your usual end times type story. Uh, basically, the Left Behind series, if you tried to cram the first, or actually, if you tried to cram all 12 books into one story covering the entire tribulation, quite ambitious. The character development was terrible. Uh, the author was preaching all throughout about his um, interesting end times theories. But the most glaringly preachy example I remember was actually in book 
3, which tried to Frank Peretti eyes the first story because, of course, there's angels and demons running around, too. And in book three, he literally cut the whole story to a halt uh, in order to preach about the value of Christian psychiatry and his particular uh-huh. uh, uh, theory about uh, how humans can be helped by uh, a psychiatrist who knows what he's doing. And it was the weirdest. I'm not even sure where he is now. And maybe he might agree with us. I, I don't know. Uh, uh, back back then, it took a lot to get an end times novel, and maybe they were desperate. Who knows? But uh, does anyone have any other uh, rants to share? Uh, any other special abilities uh, <laughs> to uh, to to go over before we move on? Okay, so you mentioned Left Behind. I read Left Behind as a young Christian when that was the first Christian fiction I'd ever read, and I absolutely loved it. I loved the preachiness of it because, yeah, I was very zealous as a young Christian in college, and I thought man, this is so amazing that like there's a book about imagining the end times and man, the Bible is all part of it. And like, I just, I wanted more Bible in my life and I wanted to see, you know, characters get saved. And I was very interested in, you know, Bible studies and and ministry and campus evangelism. So it totally fit where I was in my life. Then, you know, kind of fast forward a few years, I'm like, this is not always how people talk in real life, or this is just a little over the top. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a little too simplistic sometimes. And so then I discovered the Christ clone trilogy, which doesn't follow a Christian character through the book. It follows a non-Christian character. And so it's kind of interesting to see this non-Christian character go through the tribulation and be trying to make sense of it and trying to make sense of the antichrist and not thinking he's the antichrist. Uh, and that book did pretty well with that until the very end. And there is a, uh, there's a, I'll, I'll just look spoilers. Okay? You're about to spoil it. I've read, I read the first book a long time ago, but it is a trilogy. I, I suppose I yes. have to get books two and three for, for backup. So it, take it's, off my it's a, I want to read it. <laughs> it's a really minor moment in the story, but, um, basically the apostle John shows up like the oh, wow. apostle John and it's, uh, he's immortal, isn't he? Right. That's yeah. the theory. And so, you know, cause when Peter's like, Hey, what about that disciple? You know, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, well, if I want him to stay alive until I return, what, what is it to you? Interesting fan theory and, there. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and then in the gospel, of John, you know, John inserts, uh, Jesus did not say this to mean that this, you know, that this disciple would live forever, just that, you know, he could do that if he wanted to. So he has that little parentheses there, but in the, in the Christ clone trilogy, the actual John shows up which it's kind of an interesting moment, but basically the author spends a whole chapter explaining it and explaining his theory about why this works uh. um, through the eyes of another character. And it's, and it's like they're debating, but they're debating the author's kind of theory about this. And it was just like, it was a huge speed bump in the story to an otherwise like kind of a cool moment. Author so. intrusion, I think, is a big part of it. Like that, that's when you talk about breaking the fourth wall, it's author intrusion. It's like, I'm going to put in my own ideas here and like explain myself. If, if you're an effective writer, you don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to explain all the details. You can do it in a way that's just part of the narrative. And I, can I tease something out there too? I think this is important listening to what you said, Zach. Um, you know, you came from a very different background. I was also homeschooled. Stephen, you were homeschooled. Like we came from very much the the Christian ghetto kind of thing. You know, we were part of that Christian subculture, uh, that homeschool culture. And so I think we were socialized with that stuff growing up. We, we, we were reading that stuff. That was, I mean, we did the veggie tales thing and everything, which can even, you know, Phil Vischer admits it's preachy. Um, but it's still awesome. I still love Agreed. silly songs Agreed. with Larry. Early veggie tales has aged very yes. well. <laughs> Best stuff. 
But I, th- I think that sh- tells you something, though, because as a baby Christian, that stuff really appealed to you because it showed black and white. It mm-hmm. showed, and it's the same thing that young kids who grow up in a Christian home and who are exposed to that stuff. I think it's the same need for. It's like that. It's milk. You know, it's that. It's that. Yeah the milk that you need when you're young and you're learning. And then as you are able to progress to solid food, this is a different type of discipleship that needs to happen. You need to grow. And so that's, I I remember um, N.D. Wilson talking about how if you have a 16-year-old kid who is still wanting to just sit around with a baby bottle, like as far as his fiction, you've got a problem. You need to start giving him some meat and potatoes and giving him something to chew on. And that's, that's how I feel like this is when it comes to preachy fiction, is that sometimes Sometimes it's it's only preachy if you are older and you have the benefit of being mature. Sometimes it's something for a kid that would be good for them to hear, and it's not gonna it's not gonna take them out of the story. It's like, oh, I didn't know that, and they keep moving. Exactly. So, so that's why I think Christian fans who are growing in maturity ought not despise even the arguably wrongfully preachy stuff. Maybe God used that in your mm-hmm. life uh, to help you grow. You might look back on it now and roll your eyes and think, "What was I thinking?" Uh, just like a secular fan would rewatch a cartoon series that he enjoyed from the 1980s and then look at the choppy animation and the stilted voice delivery and think, what was I thinking? Like, no, you may not want to watch it now, but appreciate that series for what it was back when you were not so picky or so developed and you were more easily impressed back then. Uh, unfortunately, now, especially as many Christians uh, augmented by the echo chamber of social media, uh, have have moved into later stage of development and understand that a lot of the stuff they liked uh, was preachy. And a lot of Christian fans now, this is our second biggest point, a lot of Christians now have overcorrected. Uh, they want to avoid preachy fiction, uh, almost at risk of compromising their enjoyment of fiction. They seem to be very defensive. Like, well, if Christians are going to make fiction at all, it must avoid being preachy. And we think that that counts as an overcorrection. You have actually set a new standard of cultural fundamentalism where you're expecting your fiction to be good only if it does not include something. Previous Christians expected their fiction to be clean, that is, uh, free of cuss words or particular topics or violent moments or uh, sexual content, even if it was shown to be wrong. We said, well, a good story is not going to have that. The new standard is a good story won't be preachy. And as a result, I think that we have thrown out, if we believe this, we throw out not only preachiness, but the idea of meaning. And I'm curious if, if we have seen, like, not just among fans, but even among some people who are hoping to create these stories, uh, examples of this kind of overcorrection. We can be kind as possible, but it is something that I think we're, we're going to tackle and say here, uh, we would like to challenge this as overcorrection. Well, I definitely have one. Um... I'm not sure how many people are aware of this, but Veronica Roth, when she was writing her Divergent trilogy, um, she she definitely was very open about that. She had attended church. She grew up in church. And she, I, I don't know if she still identifies as a Christian. I think she kind of went through, I, I don't want to assume she went through deconstruction, but um, I know that she, her beliefs changed significantly. Um, but I think if, if you read Divergent, um, that is, especially the last book is extremely preachy. And it's a lot about um, nature versus nurture, like what makes a person behave the way they do. And what I think with that book was she did not know her own beliefs when she started writing it. I think she was writing that book to try and figure out what she really thought. 
And it you can definitely see how it was an overcorrection. She was trying to avoid any kind of preachiness in the Christian direction. You know, she wanted to just write a really good story, but because she hadn't really, I, I'm, I'm assuming here, but I, and this is what I would say to her if I had, were to talk to her, as someone who has a psychology degree, I'm just a bachelor, so I'm just, I know just enough to be dangerous. I, I, the way I look at it is she approached that with not knowing what she really thought and also not really knowing the theology behind how the human mind works and the theology of Imago Dei. And when you understand that, um, you can start to make a more solid story that comes from a perspective. But because she really, really wanted to avoid any preachiness, she ended up being confusing. And the ending doesn't really, I mean, it's honestly a very unsatisfying ending. I know that's that's a very common critique um, because she she just really, it kind of just fell apart toward the end. Because, and I honestly think it's because she was afraid to take a stance and she was afraid to be specific about what she believed on the topic. So. Yeah, I, I think um, there's a certain kind of reader that says any sort of book that mentions God is preachy. Uh, in any kind Those of discussion of religion, Lewis. yeah, oh yeah, is preachy, and that don't you dare you know, call C.S. Lewis preachy. That that would be <laughs> just absurd, and it shows that the the criticism Heresy. then at that point has been emptied of meaning, right? Because there's plenty of secular movies and books, and I've got a couple to talk about here that that include or even include a lot of religious discussion that are not preachy, um, and I think what it comes down to is. Are the characters really talking to each other, or are they is the author trying to sneak sneakily talk to the reader or the viewer? And you know, um, Stephen, you know, you and I are, are you're reading The Sparrow right now, which I read a couple years ago. Man, that entire book is about Jesuits that, that go to in space to another planet. <laughs> like the entire book is about religion, but I it's not written by a Christian author. And, um, and maybe it's because of that, but I never felt like it was preaching and I never felt like it was preaching against religion either. It was just like, here's what Jesuits would uh, struggle with in this situation in outer space. And it was, uh, you know, trying to be as honest as it could be, but the, um, the author sort of inserts herself in the story as one of the characters in, in a way. And, and she talks about that in an interview. Um, you know, but let's, we can look at some movies, right? Like Batman versus Superman. We've got the uh, uh, Lex Luthor's character has that whole monologue about what he thinks about God. God That's is very, all powerful, then he cannot be all good. Right, exactly. Uh, or I think of the Vin Diesel movie. It's one of the sci-fi ones. It's one after Pitch Black. Vin Diesel's character says, if there is a God, then he's, you know, then he's a jerk and I hate him. <laughs> I'm just censoring. <laughs> you didn't do the impression. <laughs> no, I don't do impressions. If there is a God, then he's a jerk. And I hate yeah. Him. Talking about Chronicles terrible... of Riddick? Chronicles of Riddick, yes. Ah, there we go. Yep. You know, th- but there's a Muslim character in that that's sort of the positive portrayal of religion. And, you know, again, there is a lot of religious discussion in that, but it is never preachy because it's really two characters trying to understand each other. And so maybe that's why Veronica Roth, well, you know, I, I haven't, I guess I've read the first Divergent. I haven't read the other ones, Laura, Laura but mm-hmm. you know, you said her trying to figure things out, you know, sometimes when you try to figure things out, it's just natural to get 
very preachy about it. So could be that's what was happening with her. And I think, I actually think it goes to somewhat, um, well, I'll just say this. When I've talked to other authors, when I, I've talked to a lot of different other authors, like in Realm Makers and just, you know, on Instagram. And the thing that I, the theme I notice are the ones that are the most afraid of being preachy. It's really about a fear of man. It's not about, um, you know, being afraid to, you know, not do good quality fiction or not do a good quality story. It's about, I don't want people to hate me because of what I'm saying about God. And I mean, I, I don't say that lightly. I know that that's a, a tough charge to put on someone, but I would just say that we need to recognize that sometimes the gospel is just offensive. The, the themes that we are going to talk about, the moral stances that we take as Christians are just offensive and they make people mad and they're going to come off preachy even if we are not, um, even if we're not preaching, you know, they're just going to come off that way because somebody thinks it. So I think sometimes people can be just a little bit afraid of how everybody else sees them. And instead of just laying out what they, what they believe, I th that's something I struggled with a little bit in my own novel, um, in that pill host, because the whole story, I mean, it takes place to about a third of the novel takes place at a church during Bible studies and Sunday school. Um, all the characters are Christians, every single one of them. Uh, well, anyway, um, all of them are pro professing Christians, I should say. And I wanted to make sure that I depicted the church honestly, that I wasn't um, showing them as overly good, you know, overly good, or overly perfect. But I also um, when my, my publisher said this to me when after she read it the first time, she said, I'm really grateful that you portray the church as a positive thing mm. and it doesn't come off as preachy because right. it's it's really easy to, oh, church is awesome, church is perfect, and kind of lean too far into that. I think, Laura, that you have summed up the answer to this question. Why do Christians overcorrect in trying to avoid preachy fiction with three words, fear of man? And it yeah. really comes down to what the fan or the author believes is the purpose of fiction. Is it to impress people? Uh, the, the Christian who liked preachy fiction would say, yes, I want my novel to impress a person. I want to be able to give this novel to an unsaved friend and the novel needs to preach at them in my stead. If the preacher at the pulpit can't get through, then maybe the preacher between the pages, hiding in the pages can get through. What's the purpose to impress the person? The Christian critic of that approach still carries the same assumption. I want to influence that other person for the kingdom. The assumption is still, in a sense, evangelical. You're just trying to do it better than that bad evangelical over there who liked preachiness. But if you believe the same as that person and do not challenge that assumption that that's what the book is supposed to do, then you're just repeating the error. Uh, I don't think that that is a correct way uh, to understand the purpose of a story. Well, I think another thing that makes a story not preachy is when you can tell the author loves the audience. You know, the author mm -hmm. really wants to make a connection with the reader, give the reader a good experience reading the book, and sort of not talk down to the reader. Um, and, and really, you can get away with saying a lot of things as long as you're doing it in love. And because that, that's true in life, that, you know, the closer of a relationship you have with someone, the more trust there is, the more truth you can deliver. Because Truth and grace go together. You, you can't just have one without the other. So, you know, if, if you if you feel loved by the author, if, if you feel like I'm in, you're enjoying the story, right? 
you know, then that's not going to be broken when there is some sort of message in it or there's some sort of moral to the story, uh, as long as it, you know, it doesn't feel like the author's talking down to you. Right. Talking Love down. Thy reader, yeah. Thomas Umstadt. Love thy reader. Real, Amen. We shall repeat it. Yes. The <laughs> adage. <laughs> the preachy Christian author is talking down to readers. The author who's overcorrecting is talking up to readers. Uh, it's almost a false humility. Uh, that person is, I think, uh, trying to overcorrect for the preachiness and forms the only exception I have uh, to my working definition of Christian fiction. Uh, usually when people ask me, well, what do you think makes a thing Christian? Or what, what is a Christian story versus a non-Christian story? And we've explored this in previous episodes of Fantastical Truth. Usually I define a Christian thing as a Christian made the thing. But the only exception to that is the awkward, uh, frankly, cringy uh, Christian creator uh, who is afraid of particular ideas or overtness about biblical concepts or just plain deep meaning of a story and is putting up a partition, a false divide between their faith and their creativity. Uh, that is unnecessary. Uh, pushed to its extreme, uh, it's actually hypocritical. And I think it sidelines a lot of Christian-made stories, You know, whether it's the Divergent series or anything else. Uh, it sidelines a lot of stories from finishing well uh, from going to a place that will offend, not on purpose, but by incident. A particular Christian view of the world is not going to be agreed by everybody else. And if you're not careful, whether it's a Christian creator or a secular creator, you're just going to end up with banal themes. And you're, you're going to be just another Disney remake, you know, about the self-made woman who doesn't need to actually take a character journey uh, and just ends up by the story uh, understanding that she's awesome and everybody needs to recognize that. And so it's character growth only for everyone around this character rather than the character herself. Uh, that's in Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Or, or I was actually watching a video earlier about the remake of Mulan, which apparently uh, suffered from a lot of those criticisms. Uh, yeah. You end up with a story that is more preachy often by trying to avoid being preachy because you're partitioning yourself from deeper meanings that will actually challenge the characters and may actually challenge the reader, not from a top-down approach and certainly not from a bottom-up approach, but from a, an alongside approach. The author is not only loving the reader, but respecting the reader. The author is working at the same level as the reader, which is exactly how Christian discipleship works. We do not act as Gentile leaders, Jesus said, lording our authority over others, but we become servants serving other people. That's the author's vantage, but it also leads to our third big point here. How do great, uh, sorry, this also leads to our third big question. How does great fiction disciple readers like a pastor, not a distant preacher? And that's really the division that we're talking about here. Uh, Zach, we even alluded to it a little bit in our last episode with Sharon Hink. Uh, it's really an issue of imagination when people say preachy, uh, it's not just a vague concept. Uh, it's not some abstract we're thinking of. Instead, we're thinking of some guy, a distant figure, high in a pulpit, uh, exalted, a little bit more high church ambiance going on there. Uh, he's got a robe. He's delivering a homily. Uh, his voice may be booming throughout the cathedral, uh, and maybe it might even be in a language you don't understand. In other words, that's a distant figure, uh, a high priest. You don't know this guy. You don't know his family. If he's got one, uh, this is the type of thing that Maybe you respect, uh, but you can't say that you love as much. Uh, whereas Christians from hopefully a more functional church background uh, would think not so much of the preacher, 
uh, but a pastor. Uh, we think of this person with images and not words. Uh, this person is not over us or under us, but a good one is alongside. Uh, this is not a distant figure. This is a teacher, a brother, and a friend. Uh, he's the guy who's going to show up at the Bible study. Uh, you go over to his house to help fix a flat tire. That's what a healthy Christian church relationship is like. And I think that that also ought to be how Christian stories behave, uh, not, as a, uh, not as a leader and not as the big cheese or the, uh, you know, the big Eva influencer, uh, but as a friend, uh, not a lecturer, but a pastor. So the best kinds of Christian-made stories uh, are not going to ignore that pastoral or discipleship role. Uh, they're going to acknowledge it. Uh, they're not going to flee from that as if it's bad. Uh, they're going to embrace that responsibility and engage in those explorations of meaning through the story. I think that it's important to remember like that is emulating Christ. When you take the time to write excellent stories and do a good job of character development and all those other things versus preaching, that is emulating Christ. Because if you look in the New Testament, Jesus is mostly telling parables. He's mostly using story to get his ideas across to help people understand. And he's walking alongside, you know, and, and then when the disciples don't understand, he kind of quietly explains to them behind the scenes. But he's using story because it's one of the sneakiest forms of apologetics, as I'm fond of saying. It, it, you can teach so much through a story. The Sermon on the Mount is amazing, but it's a rare situation in Scripture. It's, it's, there's not a lot of preaching, for per se. There's a lot of storytelling and living and doing in Christ's life. And I think that that's part of what we're trying to emulate as storytellers, we're trying to use that story like he did. Yeah, so I'm, I just finished up Andrew Peterson's book, Adorning the Dark. Still need to finish that. <laughs> and he talks about going through this phase of where he'd say, oh, I'm not a Christian mu musician. I am a musician. Yeah, Babylon that, B makes fun of that now, just and rightfully so. to be a Christian, yeah. Or I'm a, I'm a Christian who makes music. So he, he very much like confesses that he had this kind of snobby attitude for a while. And, it, and at first it sounded so hip and cool to say that. And then he sort of grew out of it. He's like, you know, that's kind of pretentious. And then that I, I am making, I am a Christian and I am making music about my Christian faith and Hey, whoever wants to listen to it can listen to it. And I, and I think, um, what he kind of went through is this sort of, yeah, he got over that fear of man. He got over that. Well, if I say I'm a Christian or if I say I'm making music about Christian faith or, are people just going to turn up their nose and walk away? You know? And I think that's a lot of what can be in at play here. And mm -hmm. so much of his music is just very honest. It's very like, here's where I am and here's what I'm afraid of, or here's what I'm wrestling with. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, you know, but it's still very grounded in his faith. Like I think uh, just to name someone else here, I think Rob Bell kind of takes it way too far in the other direction of just like, I have all these questions and there's no answers, like no answers are possible. And, you know, Andrew Peterson doesn't, doesn't go there. He, he talks about the questions he has. He talks about the things he struggles with, but he, he very much has a firm faith in God and he's not ashamed to talk about any of that. And I think holding those in tension is a very healthy thing. My favorite song of his is The Silence of God. Uh, it, my husband really identified with that. Um, we, we went through some difficult church situations um, when my husband was a pastor. He's no longer a pastor. He's a chaplain now. But um, when he went through that, that was that's a storytelling song. If you listen to it and there's a line, it says there's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. 
He's kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone. All his friends are sleeping and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. And so when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. There's the poetic beauty of that, but also just that is the word picture that gives you where you're, you're there with him looking at that statue, feeling the pain that he's feeling with him. And also that, that deep peace that God has given him anyway, despite what he's been through. That was deeply healing for my husband and for me after what we went through. And I, um, I, that's the type of thing I try to capture in my own fiction. I want to make sure that what I write reflects the whole totality of God, the, the beauty of God, even in the ugly circumstances. And yeah, that's definitely something to strive for. Good discipleship, whether it's from mm-hmm. a pastor or from a Christian creator, will have that healing effect, not apart from the gospel, not apart from preaching, but as part of that journey. We are growing as disciples, which just means follower. A disciple means you're being, you're pursuing discipline. You're trying to be more like Jesus. Uh, it is a gospel call. Every Christian must do it. And so everything that we use is, in a sense, a discipleship tool. And I want to I pitch this to you all real quick. Is it then accurate to say that a good Christian novel, which embraces this role, not as a preacher, uh, but as a companion, you know, as, as a disciple maker, as a fellow disciple on this journey, could we say this is a good discipleship tool? I, I for one, would go out on a limb and say, yes, I would absolutely say that. And I, I have at least one big example of actually one of Frank Peretti's uh, later novels that really helped in my discipleship journey. Well, you know, I just finished Paralandra and the entire debate that Ransom has with the Unman. Amazing. You know, yeah, just incredible. It very in-depth. And then Ransom later meets, you know, the king. And again, just tons of deep conversation. And you're just kind of peering over their shoulders listening to all this. You know, that kind of... uh that kind of storytelling, it, it's, it's obviously very different than today. It's very dialogue heavy, but again, it assumes a Christian reader or assumes someone who's interested in Christianity and wants to explore it in depth. And look, I, I think Christian authors are, they're aiming at different things. Some are aiming at, at that kind of depth. Some are aiming for more entertainment. Some are aiming, aiming at a very broad audience and there's nothing wrong with any of that. So I think it just depends on what the author is aiming at. I think it's going to look a little different with each one. But even a story that is made for a broader audience, when it when it includes Christianity or faith or even just like portrayals of biblical values, yeah, I I don't think it's um, it, it's not supposed to be just a kind of cardboard cutout of of a value or of a virtue. It's supposed to be how a character changes. And when you see a character change, it's attractive because then it sort of gives you that freedom to go, you know, I, I kind of need a change in the area. And now I'm not afraid to admit that because I see another person, even the fictional person admit that. I think where, where, uh, any kind of story gets preachy is where there's no growth. There's just a kind of a Mary Sue character that just, uh, not only has, you know, superpowers or whatever, but sort of has super morals and, and has no room for growth. And, and therefore 
the reader feels doesn't feel safe there because it feels like, well, okay, I guess I'm a lot more screwed up than this character. I can't really relate to them. Or the character is a backslidden character. And there was, there was kind of a trope for a while and may still be going in, in certain Christian novels of the unsaved character. The Christian character could feel rather disconnected from this person. And this is an unsaved or backslidden character who just needs to learn to love again or just needs to learn to let go and let God or, you know, some frankly rather trite, uh, you know, greeting card style evangelical sentiment, uh, which was supposed to save the day. And I feel distance and and frankly, um, rather cringe about such stories. They do not relate to my journey. Uh, they don't take the journey deeper. Uh, they feel like a very shallow form of discipleship. Uh, and I, I call that almost an uncanny valley. It's just enough spiritual notions to make it too Christian for the secular reader. Uh, and yet, you know, if you if you made it more Christian, I think that ironically enough, more secular readers who happen by might enjoy that. Uh, Y'all mentioned earlier the example of the sparrow. I, I wouldn't call this a Christian book, but it is deeply no, religious. It is deeply religious. There is overt religious content in there, and yet it is very secular. And maybe that helps to offset the religious content. But it obviously has not proved off-putting to others. Uh, I think that more deeply Christian stories like the Ransom Trilogy, which assume assumes so deeply in the world building the reality of Melildil, the creator of the cosmos, this realm that is filled with his light and the activity of the angels. Uh, it is so thoroughly Christian uh, that you're not, the author's not even arguing it. Uh, Lewis is assuming this reality of the cosmos so deeply and I think call, you know, pulls off the bluff. You don't go in there thinking anything other than, well, this is just the way it is. Even while, even if it's simply while reading this book, uh, which for the Christian, it's still a simulation because we don't know that's how the universe operates. Lewis is very speculative there, uh, but it's a great example, I think, of, of a series that was part of my discipleship. You know, not only was I challenged about the, you know, the ideas, you'd exactly be happy to hear this, but the ideas of assuming there's no alien life in the universe, but I'm challenged to think, okay, what if there was you know, a world that had only you know, tangentially been uh, touched by uh, the rebellion of Fulcandra, uh, which I think is Lewis's name for Earth. Uh, what if that world were Mars, Malacandra? What if there was a world named Paralandra where there was this kind of reenactment of the fall, but the story went a little differently? Um, Laura, you mentioned earlier uh, Andrew Peterson's song, which was very healing in, in your discipleship journey. I'm curious if you have another example of a Christian-made novel, uh, fantastical or otherwise, uh, that was similarly healing for you. I have several, um, but the main one, uh, I was obsessed with Greek myth when I was a child and I discovered Till We Have Faces by mm. C.S. Lewis when I was probably, I think I was in high school and I just really deeply identified with, um, Arul, the main character. She's this, um, she's not, she's not beautiful. She's not super smart. Uh, like she's not really anything. She's a secondary daughter with very little value in her uh, in this family, and she doesn't. She doesn't feel like she fits anywhere. And so there's something very, there's something very um, hard about that book. C.S. Lewis is not giving you any easy answers in this book at all. Like there's, there's no. You get to the end of the book, and there's, there's a very much a sense of longing and brokenness still there. But there's just this slight up note where you know something has changed. There's at the very end. Um, she, she's making her complaint, a, a rule, 
is making her complaint to the gods, uh, which that's that's the other thing interesting. And this is a retelling of Cupid and Psyche. Uh, it's it's a retelling of that myth, which um, is my favorite myth. And it's such a fascinating story of the relationship between the heart and the mind. That's kind of what it was supposed to be as a metaphor. And when he tells this story, um, you get to the end and she's lost her sister and she's desperately sad over it and angry with the gods because she thinks that they've taken him they've, and they've hurt her as well. And she goes and she makes her complaint and she just keeps making the same complaint over and over again and finds herself falling in front of them broken. And, and then the line is, the complaint was the answer. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. Lightly men talk of saying what they mean. Often when he was teaching me to write in Greek, the fox would say, child, to say the very thing you really mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less or other than what you really mean. That's the whole art and joy of words. And just saying, it's very much like Job. I mean, she's pouring out her heart saying, you have ruined my life and I didn't do anything wrong. And then she realizes, oh, I'm actually pretty messed up. <laughs> I, I, it's, the, it's very much that I'm going to scrape myself with a pottery piece and, and say, I, I'm going to tear my clothes. And I, I very much identified with that for some reason. It just felt, I, I'd been through some bullying and some other junk that made me feel very not valuable. And that book really helped me walk through that in this crazy, fantastical world where there's no real God. There's a bunch of gods and they all seem to behave in really scary ways, but there's something, there's a depth there. And you can tell he's a classics professor in this book. You can tell his background, Uh, but it really just, it, it gave me, it gave me language for some things that I didn't realize that I needed. And, and all in this, not completely, not preachy, just a beautiful balance between um, the secular and the truth of the gospel. And this is the one that book is the one that Tolkien liked the most out of all his books. So I think that says something too. Lewis was famously neither pastor nor preacher, and yet I would count him as a pastoral influence, even in his most heathenish book, Till We Have Faces. He just could not help being who he was. Uh, he actually preached a sermon or two in his career. I'm not sure how he felt about that. But it's something that God used him to do was to help with others' discipleship. And of course, we could go on at length about Narnia and the discipleship of Aslan. Uh, Real quick here, a newer example that I could share. Uh, Laura, you mentioned earlier Frank Peretti, who, of course, will be the keynote Mm -hmm. speaker at Realm Makers 2021 live Mm -hmm. from St. Louis. Uh, We have a Peretti. Uh, And my favorite novel of Frank Peretti's I've mentioned before, although I love his darkness novels, my favorite novel of his is actually The Visitation, which is about a pastor. It's a fantastic book. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why we don't have more novels like it, because it is so overtly Christian and it is set in the world of colliding Christian subcultures. You could actually imagine Frank Peretti's own earlier books being a reality in the world of the visitation because he names denominations. uh, He has a little fun with some of their quirks and imbalances. He is overall respectful, but still mocking and scoffing when the situation calls for it. Uh, Peretti himself has a charismatic or Pentecostal background. And oddly enough, uh, despite him not throwing these folks under the bus, uh, his exaggerated Pentecostal characters uh, come in for some roasting in this story, which is about a false messiah who starts a cult in a a small Washington town 
and the struggling older Pentecostal pastor who has to reckon with the fact that this cult leader is changing the town and the country for Jesus, uh, whereas this faithful pastor, all he ever got was heartache and a wife who died of cancer and a church that now isn't sure how it feels about their ex-pastor. Uh, it, it sounds amazing when you put it that way, but that's exactly how it is. There's no angels or demons in this book. And yet for me, I can say that it was formative, uh, even in the flashbacks of uh, Travis, the main character of his life, you know, going mm -hmm. through you know, the zeal of the young evangelist who thinks that he's just going to listen to the voice of God and then everything is going to open up for him. Uh, and then his, his courtship of a young lady and his training and the weird jobs he had to do, just all of that coupled with the modern story of this false Christ that's taking over the town and has legitimate demonic miraculous power uh, just really helped me to see not just the real world, uh, but even the evangelical world in an appreciative yet realistic light. And I would recommend that to anyone who even now may be trying to reckon with the way that they grew up or the way that they see the church now. Uh, it is a fiercely powerful, uh, effective discipleship tool, I would say. I love, there's a scene in that where the this guy is throwing out bread and when they pick it up, there's worms in it. And that that image has stuck with me for a very long time. I think I read that back in like middle school, high school. And I just remember thinking, oh, wow, that is so true. It's such an apt metaphor. You're, as a pastor, you're supposed to be giving the bread of life. You're supposed to be bringing that every week. And then it's full of worms. So it's a great book. Well, I'm going to break genre a little bit and talk about a nonfiction book. Uh, so this is Unbroken. And it's the story of Louis Zamperini, who is an uh, Olympic runner. And uh, he fought in World War II. He was, uh, he was uh, a, a navigator, a gunner on a, a, a plane. And then uh, got, their plane got shot down over the Pacific. They drifted on these life rafts for weeks. They got found by um, the Japanese military. They were POWs for a long, long time. Uh, he was basically tortured uh, there in prison. Um, and it's, but it's, you know, how he held up and how he endured through all of that. And I did not know until the very end that he became a Christian through all that. In fact, it was at a Billy Graham crusade that he became a Christian. They became an evangelist. This is all a true story. I had no idea this is where the story was going when I picked it up. Um, I just heard a lot about this book and was like, I'll try to check this out. But the author just so uh, carefully weaves in these spiritual themes of where uh, Zamperini had this like basically supernatural encounter on their raft, like where uh, uh, thinks an angel spoke to him and then uh, meets a prison guard who is a Christian, like a Japanese Christian. And uh, Zamperini kind of lies and says, well, I'm a Christian too. And then he gets like a little bit better treatment. Uh, but there are some incredible moments of faith just kind of sprinkled throughout the book. And even when he goes to this Billy Graham crusade, it's very much in the context of his life was literally falling apart and he was descending into alcoholism. And so again, it, it makes sense with how it's woven together and you know, it's all true. It's a nonfiction, but Hey, the best nonfiction feels unbelievable, right? Like the best fiction feels believable and the best nonfiction feels like fantastical. And, and it really did at times it felt like, how can this be true? But that, uh, you, you know, everything in that book, all of the spiritual encounters, it was, again, it was a character moment. It was 
character transformation. It was something that the character cared about. They weren't just a mouthpiece for an author to say something to the audience. And, and there was no apologizing either for, for this spiritual content. And I think that's another key is that if you're going to put spiritual content in a book, do it intentionally and do it on purpose and, and do, don't apologize uh, because that, that really, that sends the clearest message. It's kind of like the, you know, I mentioned public speaking earlier and like I, I learned early on with public speaking, like, well, if you, if you act nervous, the audience will get nervous. And so when, when authors do that, when they sort of like, eh, they kind of like dribble a little spirituality, but, oh, you know, it's okay. And it's not for everyone. And it's like, if you give too many qualifications, then, then it, it, it kind of makes the reader go, wait, it, is this supposed to be in here? Like, did, was there a mistake? And so you, it, it has you you have to own it. There. Yeah. Yeah. I think you really hit on something there. I think it's about having courage. I think that as, especially yeah. as Christians in the culture we're in today, we have a hostile culture now. It is, they don't, well, they don't want to hear it, you know, and it's about having courage to say, no, this is what I believe and I'm putting it in my book. And if you don't like it, well, this is what scripture says. Um, you're angry with scripture, not me. I mean, I actually had a scene in my book that I cut. Uh, I was, when you were talking about put it in there on purpose, you know, I, I everything in my book, I, I really tried to make sure it was there for a reason. There was this one little scene where we talked about um, how to deal with a demon. And I I'd put that in there and I realized it didn't, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that this really serves the story. I'm not sure that this is going to, this is probably just going to confuse people. I'm not really delving into theology here in a way that's helpful. And so I just ended up cutting it, even though it was actually a plot point. I ended up cutting it because I felt like I need, if I'm going to put this in my story, I want to have a stance on it. I want to make sure that I can back it up with my own faith. And I didn't feel like I could with that section. So I didn't. I, th I think you just, that's, there's something else I've, I've noticed, you know, I've, I'm on a lot of social media um, with other authors and there's a lot of Christian authors who are really tentative about their faith and about talking about their faith. And I get it. I, I get, it. I've seen Christian authors savaged on social media for what we would, on both sides, both from more fundamentalist or more like super conservative people will get mad if you put something in your your fiction that they're not comfortable with. And then the other, the other side, um, who's angry that you're just towing the line of what scripture says. And I, I think that it, there's, it really does boil down to having courage, you know, going to God and saying, you know, give me the courage to say what scripture actually says. Give me the courage to tell stories that glorify you and show the truth of the gospel, even when I'm not overtly saying it. You know, Andy Wilson, there's this quote that I have pinned up on my uh, my desk at all times. It says, stories are like catechisms, but they're catechisms for your impulses. They're catechisms with flesh on. So a story is walking you through the questions you have and giving you an answer without saying it. It's, give, it's walking you through to find the answer. And it takes courage to say, hey, I do have an answer for you. When you're hurting or you're scared or you're angry or you don't believe God's there, I have an answer for you. It takes a lot of courage to say that to people. It takes courage and it takes clarity. There's an Old Testament warning against the trumpeter sounding an uncertain sound. If, the, if you try to communicate something and you don't know how to do it, uh, then you are communicating without clarity. No one's going to know what it is you're saying or why. And I think that that lack of clarity really uh, in, in the, the belief, the doctrinal perspective of a Christian storyteller 
uh, is what leads to those two extremes, the preachy story or the story that is so fearful of being preachy that you sacrifice meaning, that you ignore your own role as a Christian citizen uh, in this quest that all Christians share of discipleship. And that is the calling of the Great Commission, not just to go out and get people saved, but to go out and preach the gospel, to share the gospel. It is about discipleship. And that doesn't just mean the, the call to repent and believe in Jesus. When we reduce the gospel to a simple call to be saved, then we're missing those broader implications of the gospel. It certainly includes the call to repent and be saved, but it also says a lot more. And stories are meant to explore a lot more. And Christian-made stories, whether they're for the general audience or for the Christian audience, can do much more if the author is convinced of what she or he believes and integrates that into the world building. I've used this example before. It's a bit jargony, a bit author jargony, which we try to avoid at Fantastical Truth, but I will risk repeating it now. If the author has integrated those concepts into the world, the supporting material for the story, which every story needs to have so that you, the reader, get the idea that there's more to this world than what is on the page. If all those biblical concepts, you mentioned earlier, Laura, the Imago Dei, uh, any of those understandings of even basic human nature and how we start to resolve those challenges that humans face. If that's in the world building, then it's going to show in the story, but the story will not be preachy. The reader, however, will be able to tell that the story has deep meaning. And for Christians who are called to disciple one another, pastorally and otherwise, you can use, oh, dare I say it, use these stories as a tool, not false pragmatism, not to beat someone over the head, uh, not to lecture them, uh, not to try to get them to come forward to the church and be saved or recommit or anything like that, but you can use it as a tool for growth, healing from trauma, understanding the truth, understanding other people, uh, building empathy in the world, but also standing for truth. Uh, all of that is the function of a great Christian-made story. And that's, I think, what we want to see as fans uh, going forward. Uh, maybe we'll make those stories of our own to share with others. Uh, but mostly as fans, those are the kind of books that we're going to enjoy the most. And speaking as Lorehaven publisher, that's the kind of story we want to see and review positively at lorehaven.com. Laura, I really resonate with it, what you said about a lot of Christian authors kind of feeling afraid to offend people. And as a Southerner, I totally get that. You know, as a recovering people pleaser, I get that. Uh, you know, in Strengths Finder, I'm an includer. So I, I totally understand the struggle. And I think it just comes down to the fact that we can't please everyone and you can't include everyone, you know, and if, and if you don't decide who to include or decide who to please, then you're going to end up not including anyone. You can't include like a generic person. You know, you have to like <laughs> choose the people that you are writing for that, who you want your readers to be. And so yeah, I think that takes courage and it just kind of takes that intentionality of saying, okay, this is what my story's about and this is who it's for. I think a confidence in God too, just confidence in who you are and who you are in God, those two things together. And I definitely agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was uh, really great to talk to you about this. And uh, to you, our listener, if you want to give us some feedback on this episode and talk to us about the the best or the worst stories with preaching or preachiness or you know, the best stories that are being subtle about it, you know, send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. We'd love to hear some good examples. Um, again, just to, uh, I'm sure we can all think of like really bad examples of preachy stories, but we would really love some examples of 
stories that do this well, that dive into spiritual topics to very overtly biblical topics and, and do it and with, uh, with style, with, with skill and with grace. There's this Bible verse I was thinking of, Laura, earlier. It's uh, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Amen. There can be hard truths from a story that the character goes through, that the author wants the reader to think about. But again, it, it's, it's from a friend. And so uh, I, I think it just takes a matter of skill and a matter of love of the author towards the reader. So we'd love to hear some stories about that to our listener. Well, Laura, where can our listeners find you online and tell us about when the book comes out? Well, you can find me at lgmccary.com because, um, again, I write under LG McCary. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook under LG McCary. I'm more active on Instagram. So if you like goofy, weird history and um, lots of random ephemera that I have collected over the years, that's what you're going to find on my Instagram. I also do watercolor and fun stuff. My novel, That Pale Host, comes out in October. It'll be available for pre-order July 16th. And it's a supernatural literary thriller about a young mom uh, struggling with anxiety and fear and realizing that that fear is becoming something different, something stronger, and something maybe alive. Mm. Can't wait to debut it at Realm Makers. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to people getting to see the cover. On July 16th, this word is available for pre-order. That sounds awesome. So that is lgmccary.com, M-C-C-A-R-Y.com. Mm-hmm. Laura, it's been great to have you here. Uh, go to lgmccary.com. Make sure to hit that pre-order. And of course, uh, readers of Lorehaven will find you uh, haberdashing about the site as well as your Instagram feed. We'll have all those links in the show notes for this episode. We will also have links to how you can follow uh, Lorehaven on Instagram, Lorehaven Mag. Follow us on Twitter at Lorehaven. Uh, Facebook, you can search for Lorehaven. Uh, you can also join the Lorehaven group that we have on Facebook. And stay tuned to the site for that future announcement that I teased at the beginning of this episode. You can also email podcast at lorehaven.com for any feedback about this episode uh, or leave a comment or use the feedback form at the episode's show notes page, lorehaven.com slash podcast. Or DM us on Instagram. I'm very active and I will get back to you quick. <laughs> she certainly will. Next on Fantastical Truth, what if your father drank a vial of holy water that might have come from the tree of life? Then you were researching his work and found yourself waking up in the Middle Ages, just as the peasants began revolting. Novelist Jody Headland explores this in Come Back to Me, book one of her fantasy, romance, time travel series, The Waters of Time. And next week, she joins us on Fantastical Truth. Meanwhile, if you're looking for a great story, don't just look for a story that doesn't have something in it, whether it's bad words or evangelism or preachiness. Great stories are filled with good things, including great teaching, teaching for the characters, even if not for the reader. Great stories in a biblical worldview are part of our discipleship. They are part of how we grow to become like Jesus, who is our Savior and our ultimate author. And it's our privilege to continue seeking and finding His fantastical truth.